0818-715-815. Hello, good afternoon. You're very welcome to Liveline. Column O'Mungine here. Happy New Year to you. You can get us by text on 51551 by phone 0818-715-815. Joe at rte.ie for your emails or you can WhatsApp us 087-484-8888 or if you're contacting us from the UK or Northern Ireland 0845785333 for your WhatsApps. Angela Dwan, um, good a- Happy New Year to you. Happy birthday. Happy New Year, Colm. Happy belated birthday, should I say. Thank you very much. You are one of those little celebrities who was born on New Year's Day. Tell us what year. Yes, I was born on the 1st of the 1st, 1973, the day that Ireland joined the EEC as it was then. It's now the European movement. All right. And so on the day of your birth, what do your parents tell you about what happened? How was it marked on the day? Well, on the lead up to um, the first, obviously being such a significant day for Ireland, there was a lot in the papers and advertisements regarding what was going to happen. So there was a certain amount, I'm not sure of the exact amount of medals that were struck. Uh, they were designed by Mr Bill Watson and they were struck on behalf of the EEC and the Irish government for, I think it was maybe the first 50, it could have been 100 babies that were born in on the island of Ireland um, on that night. And then I think there was about 10 um, endowment policies given to the first 10 uh, babies that were born of £1,000, which was a lot of money in 1973, um, to be given out by the New Ireland Assurance Company when they reached the age of uh, 16, 17, 18 and 19 and 20. They got £200 on each of those birthdays. You say they did, you didn't. Well, you see, my mum was, that's a bone of contention column. Uh, I was born at 6pm when the angels were ringing, so hence my name came with me. And the nurse said to my mum, you have to call the child Angela. Uh, so I was called Angela because I was born at 6 o'clock. So I think the first babies were born just after midnight. I want to say maybe it could have been Limerick um, and then Cork and then it was into Dublin then. All right. How did you mark the birthday yesterday? Well, I was 51 yesterday, so it was a kind of, 50 was probably more of a significant birthday. Yesterday, the weather was so bad, uh, we didn't do much, but actually my happy place is Inishmore on the Aran Islands. So tomorrow morning at half past five, I'm up to get the first ferry over to Inishmore and that's my birthday present. Right, you'll be taking a break there, have you? What's the weather forecast like over in Inishmore for tomorrow? You know, you don't go to Inishmore for the sun. So we take whatever comes. We go there several times a year and it's a beautiful place even when it's wild. So we'll take whatever comes. You know, it could, you could be lucky, you could have a bit of sunshine. Uh, equally, it could be wild, but it kind of passes over fairly quickly, you know, because you're out so far. Right. What's the first birthday you remember? I want to say always, well, I grew up in, I was born uh, in the Rotunda, um, obviously off O'Connell Street, and then I grew up in East Walls. So every New Year's, obviously, New Year's Day itself, obviously, is my birthday because it's after 12 o'clock. But uh, we always celebrated it on New Year's Eve because usually there was a party given by neighbours and all the, at that time, uh, old neighbours would come out onto the street at 12 o'clock and they would always sing Old Lang Syne in a circle and I would be put into the middle of the circle and then after Old Lang Syne finished, it was always um, happy birthday to me. Every year? So that's my... Uh, well, most years as I was growing up, most years that was um, New Year's Eve. Uh, so we would go out on the road and it was always sang uh, to me right. from family and neighbours. So that's my memories of growing up. And then I suppose I kind of didn't really realise until I got older with school and history in school, talking about the EC as it was then. And um, always when I came up in school, I would 
come with my story and I don't think it was believed that, you know, I had a medal and I was born and given a medal. So the medal would be produced and I'd bring the medal into school and it would be talked about in history class. And um, so all, all my life it's kind of been, it's like, a, I suppose, a unique selling point. You know, it's the, it's the special thing. So my birthday is New Year's Day and I got a medal and I was born at six o'clock when the angels were ringing. So right. it's, you Did know. you always enjoy being stood around in a circle on New Year's I Eve? I did because it was Year's special Day. because you had so much, like other people's birthdays are at different times of the year and I know it's, you know, everybody's birthday is special. Um, but I suppose because it was New Year's Eve and there was everybody else, it kind of added to the whole you know, thing. So yeah, I, I, I you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a bit of history and it's a special, special day for me. Right, and the cake was, was left over yeah, Christmas well, cake, because, was it? Well, you know, sometimes because it was, the, the, at that time, you've got to remember in 1973, a lot of the shops didn't open over Christmas, you know, so it wasn't like now where everything is 24-7. And, um, you know, so, you know, at times you could be produced with the Christmas cake, but the birthday cake coming on the day, maybe, you know. Um, but it, that was part and parcel of it. And, you know, so you, it, it wasn't like today. You're, you're talking now 51 years ago, you know, um, different times. And you still have the medal. I do. Uh, when I left home, um, I moved to Cork uh, and my mum gave me the medal when, when I left home and it stayed with me all over the years um, and it comes out every now and again. Obviously last year was a big one, the 50, um, and then they put a drive on the paper looking for the EU movement, looking for these babies to come forward for the 50 years, which was nice. And we were brought to Leinster House during the summer and uh, we were presented with a newer version of a medal and a commemorative coin for the 50 years of, of Ireland uh, joining the EEC. All right. so we're we're, we're nice. going to tweet a picture of, of uh, the silver medal, which has your name on one side. Uh, and Yeah, and every the, baby's name is on one side and then it's the shamrock and the European movement on the other side. Um, so that's the way it came in the blue box with a little piece of paper that gave the history of the medal. I think they were sent out afterwards uh, once the birth was registered. They arrived by post. Um, so yeah, I've had the medal all these years and you know it'll be passed on then to my daughter Katie and a little bit of history. Well, as you say, you're going to keep it in the family, but is it is it a, a collectible at this stage? Have you ever been approached I don't, I don't, about it? I don't, well, I, I was approached a few... I, I, I want to say it was either when I was 30 or 40, um, the uh, European movement came on. I think they, it was, they were looking for them, maybe medals to go into some museum in Brussels, maybe to do with the EU, but I just felt I had it so long and I've kept it and I just wanted to hold on to it. So I sent pictures, and uh, obviously, and any information they wanted. It's bronze dipped in silver, um, um, you know, I don't know how hugely valuable it, it is, but you know, there's only a certain amount of them. So, you know, it's not really, I don't think it's about the value. I think it's about the um, sentimental value, really, you know, and it's a special thing, you know. And did it make any difference to you being born? Do you think on New Year's Day was it a bit of a curiosity? What what's the kind of difference you'd well, say? Well, as it I said, it's always been it's always been it's always been the talking point for me, you know, because when when you meet people and you you talk and they inevitably it comes around to what age or your birthday, and then I go actually, and and then not only that, it was the day and I got a medal, and then not, it was and six o'clock. So you know, kind of it kind of is a bit of a humorous thing, you know. Um, but no, I love my birthday. My, it's unique. It's very unique to me, and um, it brought my name with me. So, you know, in that sense, it's, it's, it's special, you know, it's special for me. All right, Sinead McGinty, you did get one of those New Ireland Assurance uh, endowments of £1,000 that paid out between your 16th and 20th birthdays. Where did you come and where are you from? Hi, Callum. Um, I'm from Donegal. Um, I was born to Miriam Dan Gallagher in Pedigal. 
and um, I don't live there anymore now. I'm married and I live in Killy Beggs in the county Donegal. Um, yeah, but I'm also one of those babies that was born on the 1st of January 1973. And when, how did you know or when did you first become aware that this endowment was being handed out? Did you always know it when you were growing up? Were you looking forward eagerly to your 16th birthday? Oh yeah, we always knew that it was there for us. Um, I think uh, Maureen, as we were speaking to previously, said there was 10 of us. I think there was 12 of us in total. Um, There was a set of twins and then there was um, two one parents and then there was the rest of us that got that endowment. So um, relatively early on, I would have received a birthday card from the New Ireland and um, obviously as a child was curious as to know where this was coming from and would have asked questions about it. And then my mum and dad would have explained that it was because that we were born on this special day and about Ireland joining the EC. And, you know, from there we learned about that and about the importance of it and that's why we got this endowment. So, like previously mentioned, we got that on our 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th and 20th birthday. And um, it was given to our parents. So, yeah, but it was a lot of money at the time. It was a, a lot, a lot of money in the year we were born. But then we didn't get it until we were 16. So the value of it probably had decreased somewhat. But it was still right. a nice thing Yeah, 200 to get, quid yeah. in 1989 when you first started getting it. That wasn't bad. Did it make much of a difference to you? Can you remember anything you, you spent it on or that your parents spent it on? No, my mum looked after it um, for me and um, she um, would have looked after me in later years then. She would have invested it, you know, put it away aside for me and then given it to me when I was older because like 200 euro was a lot of money, but it wasn't that much money. So, um, yeah, we didn't do anything in particular with it at that point. She she looked after it for me. So, yeah. Right. Angela, do you want to say anything to Sinead there? Hi, Angela. Happy birthday, Sinead. (laughs) Happy birthday, Angela. Unfortunately, I didn't make it to uh, Dublin in the summer because we had our holidays booked and we were flying back into Belfast on the day. Well, I hope they sent you the the coin. You can still contact them because it's nice to have the coin. Um, Yeah, no, unfortunately. Unfortunately, no, they didn't. They didn't send it. Um, I had hoped, um, obviously, if I'd have known, you know, of the date before booking the holiday, I wouldn't wouldn't have missed it for the world. But, um, yeah, it was just the way the thing worked out for us. We flew into Belfast and it was happening in Dublin, so it wasn't even feasible to be able to manage to do that. So, yeah. How many people did turn up, Angela? And by the way, if anyone's out there, we're talking to two babies of 1973 uh, who qualified for various prizes uh, at the time of their birth and to coincide with Ireland's entry into the uh, then European economic community. But if there's anyone who can go further back for a New Year's Day birthday, uh, further back than 1973, don't hesitate to get in touch with us. 0818715815, by text or joe at rte.ie by email. How many people were there, Angela? I want to say in the 30s column, um, I'm not completely sure. Um, I'd say there was about 30 people in total. And did they all but still they have their com- medals? They did, yeah. And they're all from different parts of the country. And, you know, I presume some are away and some have emigrated and maybe some have sadly passed away. And, you know, that's the cycle of life. Um, but there was 30 uh, tracked down for the day. All right. Sinead, how did you mark the birthday yesterday? 
Oh, I spent today with my husband Damien and my daughters Chloe and Nicole. Um, like Angus said, the weather was so poor yesterday. Uh, we would generally mark our New Year's Day every year by doing a special walk somewhere, but unfortunately we didn't get to do that yesterday. But uh, no, we just had a lovely family day here together and um, it was very special. It's always special to spend days with your family. All right. And growing up, obviously, birthday, close proximity to Christmas. Was it a, was it a boon or a burden? Um, well, I, I always celebrate my birthday every year. So um, like uh, previously mentioned, you were generally probably out on New Year's Eve. So there was always a fuss made, you know, when people were made aware then, oh, your birthday's on New Year's Day. So obviously after 12 o'clock, they would um, sing happy birthday to you and all that there would, you know. So it was celebrated every year. And um, it's quite funny. So uh, as I mentioned, I'm not living where I was born. But yesterday was social media being as it is. Um, you get all the birthday mm-hmm. wishes. And I got a birthday wish from a lady that would have been older than me when I was growing up at home. And I thought that was quite quite cute. Even to this very day on my 51st birthday, she remembers me as the Euro baby. You know, so she wished me birth- happy birthday to the Euro baby. So uh, even at 51, I'm still the Euro baby. <laughs> But having your birthday... You'll always be, always be a Euro baby. We'll always be Euro babies. <laughs> and having your birthday on New Year's Day, obviously schools don't return till after the 6th of January. Did you both... Did, did you both have to... Just have to take take your medicine and do your homework when you went back well, to school? Well, there was a plus you, and minus. You didn't get the bumps. So you missed the bumps yeah, in school. You didn't yeah. get the bumps, yeah. Right. Well, you didn't get yeah. off your homework when you returned to school either. No. So I suppose there, were, there was pluses and minuses. Right. Sinead, you're, you're working in a school now, are you? Yeah, I work in a school and um, it's just, it, even last year, um, before we broke up for Christmas, I was working in a different school and um, t- we were telling the children because uh, there was myself and a friend of mine were working and we were both turning 50. There was a week of difference in our birthdays and... Um, we were telling the children about the, the Euro baby and they were looking at us because it's history to them now. They, you know, they, they, they had never heard of it before and it's, it's history to them, you know, that we were actually t- telling them a bit of history, which was quite interesting, you know, to be there and to share with them, you know, about this because they had no knowledge of it or the, the baby's born, been born at that time or, you know. Right. I suppose it's easier if you're born on New Year's Day to calculate your birthday as well. You, you kind of know, you've less scratching the head to do. column. Is That's it really? Yeah. <laughs> Aileen Kennedy. It is as the years go on. It is, yeah. Aileen Kennedy, you're another Euro baby. I am, yes. Born, born the first of the first 73 as well, yeah. And did you qualify for the New Ireland Assurance uh, Endowment or were you, did you come later in the day? No, I came later in the day, much to the disappointment of my father. I missed out on all those kind of things. Um, yeah, I, I was a little bit late to the, to the table. I think I was somewhere at six in the evening. Right, so close enough to where Angela was born. You, you were, you're kind of, your your birthday twins. Oh, well, there you go. And how come you're alien and she's Angela? You, you must have, the bells weren't uh, we're, audible where you were, were they? No, that's it. No, but still we're the A-team, isn't that it? That's it, the 18th. Yeah. And what are your own memories of New Year's Day birthdays, Aileen? How did you mark? How did you mark this year's one? Um, well, this year, 51 wasn't as spectacular as 50. And last year, unfortunately, we were all down with COVID. Um, just the, the end of the pandemic. But um, no, it was always, it was lovely to have a birthday so soon after Christmas. 
despite the fact that the Christmas cake often ended up being the birthday cake. <laughs> All right. So that's. The, what about you, Sinead? You didn't mention any of the uh, the uh, the leftover Christmas. At least it keeps. You didn't mention oh, the uh, the I birthday was, cake. I, I was blessed with a great mum. That was well. I'm sure everybody's mums were great, but uh, mum was a great baker. So um, and I grew up on a farm. So we always had lots of fresh eggs, and uh, my mum used to whip up a cake for me every, on my birthday every year. Yeah. All right, Aileen. Do you yeah. li- Aileen? Do you like Christmas cake? Not particularly anymore. <laughs> right. And what about yourself, Angela? Well, I'm, I, I was a chef in a previous life column, and cakes were my forte, so I love cake. Right. Love Christmas cake. Even Christmas cake. Even Christmas cake. Even the marzipan icing on Christmas cake. Oh, the whole lot, the whole shebang. Right. So you were doing well on your birthday. It, yeah. You, you didn't really particularly mind. That, um, no, never. As I said, it, it would be the night when the neighbours would bring out the cake then and then the following day, mum would come with something, you know. Right. So there was always, I didn't lose out. Aileen, did you make the gathering back in uh, July? I did. Yes, I did. And it was a really lovely uh, occasion. Really lovely. And do you still have um, your medal? Another, I do, yeah. My mother very diligently minded it for me and I still have the 1973 medal. Uh, so that was great. Now, when the... Um, when the gathering happened in July, there was a lot of uh, media about it afterwards, so my age was totally blown out of the water. <laughs> and uh, I'm principal of a primary school, so suddenly all the children knew my age. I was no longer 21, <laughs> as I had claimed for so many years. Right. But anyway. And what's um, your homework yeah. policy to people who are uh, similar New Year's Day babies like yourself? Do you grant an exemption for people whose birthdays fell during the holidays? Well, uh, the, the way it works in school with us, our student council are very um, active and uh, they um, put forward a thing where they get every Wednesday night off homework. So uh, they they do well. They, they don't have to worry about birthdays. <laughs> they right, do they, well. They have a Bill Brooks, uh, you can you can beat 1973. Do you want to tell us 1st of January what year? 1970, Colin. Right, no medals for 1970 at that I stage. I knew nothing about anything about medals or anything like that whatsoever. Right. My brother was born the 2nd of January and my sister was born on the 5th of January. Right, how many years apart? Uh, my younger brother is seven years and my my older sister would be, she'd be 62, so she'd be, what, six, eight years. Right, how did you mark it this year? Uh, nothing. <laughs> I can't, I can't is it a bit of a non-event for you falling on New Year's Day? Is it hard to no, get people no. together for the birthday? Yeah, it is. But look, you know, I had the wife and the kids there. Once they're happy and healthy, that's 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 a present in itself for me. You know, right? And growing up, what is it? Is it possible at all to organise a birthday party for New Year's no, Day? No, absolutely no. not. If I no. got something for Christmas, that's your birthday as well. I was told. Right. So it's just so one of those things, you know. So you're not exactly elated to have been born on the first of January. No, 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 no none of my siblings uh, who were born early January would be elated at all, and I wouldn't have thought. Right. Car- I think my father I- planned. I think my father, my father, God rest him, would have planned that very well. I would have said. And what 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 dates did you say the others were born? The second of January and the second January. My brother's brother's birthday today, actually second January, and then what's boy, his name? Um, John. John. John happy and then birthday, my sister John. Valerie. My sister Valerie was born on the fifth of January. Right, so that is still to come. I actually, I, have, a sister, I have actually have a sister-in-law whose birthday is today as well. All right, well, happy birthday to her too. And did they all miss out on having post-Christmas birthday celebrations? And um, I would have, I'd say yes. I can't really remember, to be honest with you, I've gone back a few years and getting old. But I would have said yes, definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And the cake but, thing? 
God, no. <laughs> we, we grew up in the 80s, Colin. <laughs> right, so Christmas cake, uh, same question to Christmas you. Christmas cake, my father used to make lovely Christmas cake now again. He's, he's passed away now, but my father made lovely Christmas cake. He made them in October, and he was sent out in the shed for two months to settle his woods, and uh, they were absolutely fabulous. I, I, you couldn't have had a nicer cake, and that was, that was good enough for us, you know. All right. All right, that's the New Year's babies. We're back with more after this. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Column O'Mungoin here, 51551 for your text. Joe at RTE for your emails. And you can WhatsApp us on 087 484 8888. Or if you're trying to WhatsApp us from Northern Ireland or the UK, you can get us on 08457 853 3. Now, Pierce Stokes, good afternoon to you. Happy New Year. Hi, Happy New Year to you too. Well, we're, again, we want to get you to pick your brains on a situation where somebody who has foxes living in their back garden, you're an expert on foxes, somebody who has foxes living in their back garden thinks that a litter of cubs might be under attack from a dog fox and they're wondering, should they intervene and even should mm-hmm. they be leaving out food for the foxes in their garden? Mm-hmm. So do you want to tell us what your own fox connection is first? My fox connection, God, I've been rescuing foxes for about 10 years and I'm currently the rescue coordinator in Kildare Wildlife Rescue. So we take in all species, all native Irish species of animal. We rescue them, we rehabilitate them, and we release them back into the wild when they're, when they're fit and healthy. Um, I'm just one small cog in a very big team of volunteers. And uh, we've, in the last two years since we've been set up, we've uh, handled over 5,000 cases across all your various species from endangered curlew to pigeons and foxes. Um, so it's a good question there that the, the caller has come in with. And it kind of brings up one of the things I'm always saying about wildlife rescue. You, you never say never, but we wouldn't expect there to be any fox cubs around at this time of year. We'll start to hear them make that high-pitched screech in the middle of the night. And that's as they begin to start pairing up to mate. Um, the, the, they'll couple up for a long while and then they'll mate and then probably around March we might start to see some early cubs popping up. They definitely do uh, have their dens underneath garden sheds but I would say never say never when it comes to wildlife rescue. We, we could have cubs but the way the climate has changed and, and the, the winter has been so unseasonably mild, who knows what's going on out there. So what I would urge that caller and, and anybody who, who has any kind of wildlife questions, it's a case of getting a good quality video or the best video you can get of the situation and you send it to Kildare Wildlife Rescue, that's info at kwr.ie. We'll assess that, a group of people will assess that, have a look and we'll see what intervention needs, if any. You know, the best is always when there's no intervention needed. But if there is an intervention needed, we can... Uh, we can put a, you know some volunteer teams onto onto that case and, right. and help it. And in, if you're saying there that you know you, you do rescues. Does that mean mm-hmm. that a fox has to be in a particular type of distress, or if somebody has foxes living in their garden and they're not comfortable mm-hmm. with it, do you intervene to get them out of there and maybe into a wilder location? What's your approach? No, only when an animal is sick or injured or in imminent danger. So we don't just relocate animals. And one thing I'd say about relocating foxes is foxes every year regulate their populations in an area based on the amount of resources that are there. So if you take a fox away, well, next year you're going to have a new fox right back 
and you can do that forever. You'll just have foxes coming back to your garden. What you can do is things to make sure that you're not attracting foxes to your garden. Now, my mom is an avid gardener. She's got a beautiful garden and she loves having a fox in there. It's eating the, the mice. It's eating the rats. It's eating, you know, slugs and snails and worms and all that kind of stuff. Keeping the garden healthy and, and, a, and a good indicator of a healthy garden is that it's got great biodiversity in the form of some of the bigger mammals that we would have. She like, doesn't mind, like she doesn't mind the fox digging in in the garden, making a fox's den. Loves a fox. Really? No. Well, you see, this is what I was going to say. Foxes, they, they, we don't really see them digging their own dens in urban environments. But if you have a shed or a deck that's just sitting on the ground, that's a perfect shelter for a fox to raise a family. So um, if your shed is on a concrete slab or something like that, generally speaking, you don't see as many dens. But if you just have a shed down the end of the garden, it's the perfect place. Um, and then variety of food. So if you're putting food scraps out or if your neighbours are feeding them or whatever, you'll get them. But I would say foxes are broadly a harmless animal. They're very good to have in your garden. Like I said, they are going to be eating rodents and keeping rats away. So I would say learn to love Ireland's natural heritage. You know, look at your back garden. You don't want to get close to these animals. Love them because they're wild and enjoy them at a distance right. because, uh, yeah, they're great. How do you set up the video? What kind of video are, are you talking about using? Do you have to get specialist equipment that's, you know, sensitive no, to no. triggers or can you film them on your phone? And how close should you go if you are to yeah. video them and send them, say, the video to you? Yeah, so the most important thing usually in those videos is that we get an idea of a situation. So the size of the back garden, is an animal able to escape easily, are the walls high, things like that. So in that sense, a video taken at your back garden window, absolutely fine. We can see, oh yeah, I can see the shed there, I see the animals or whatever. When it comes to how an animal is moving or if it is injured or not, you know, the better the video, the better. So, you know, whatever you think you can manage. But we'd never encourage anybody to get up close with a potentially injured animal. Because even though these are small animals, they're less than 10 kilos, they can still be dangerous if they're cornered. You know what I mean? Nobody wants to get bitten by a fox. So stay well away. Get as good a video as you can, multiple angles. And then you send it down to our email team and they will ha- they'll have a good thorough assessment. And if we need a better investigation one of our Dublin volunteers or wherever you are in the country, one of our volunteers will head down and maybe do a more detailed assessment and see what's going on. Um, what, about, are, what about kids and pets in the back garden? If the foxes are new arrivals, will they avoid yeah. gardens where there are existing pets? And what's the protocol if you have kids who are using the back garden? So kids, I'd have no worries whatsoever about, about kids. Now, if you have an injured animal that can't, just leave the garden if it's cornered somewhere, if it's caught somewhere. Definitely keep your kids away from that because a cornered animal will always try and fight its way out, whether it's a squirrel or a fox. But if a fox is mobile and just living in the back garden, as soon as you head out, he'll just run away. He'll make himself scarce. Um, with pets, then, it's a little bit different. And, and some of the foxes that I've had to rescue have been as a result of dog attacks, Um when I spoke to Joe a few years ago about a, a fox that we rescued up on Hoth Head that had been savaged by a German shepherd, but that that fox we rescued it and it made a complete recovery, and um, so they 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 can endure quite a lot. But yeah, your dog. Did you say squirrels will try and fight their way out of a situation? I mean, if they're if they're cornered, yeah. I just mean any any even a mouse will even try and fight its way out. You know what I mean? I just if an animal's cornered, and the last resort is 
they'll they'll either the first thing they'll do is they'll run away. Every have you ever seen a squirrel trying to fight away. its way out of a situation or heard reports? I was bitten by a fox. But I was bitten by a squirrel last night. Last night. <laughs> last night. Yeah. What happened? Um, so I, I I had three rescues to do yesterday for Kildare Wildlife Rescue, um, and I had to get a squirrel out of a. A chimney stove, um, and it was in there. And just squirrels what, it are very, very climbed up on the chimney and fell down. Did it? It seems to have fallen down the chimney. Yeah. Um, so I just had to take it out from inside the chimney. And while I was doing that, as sometimes happens, because um, squirrels are very, I mean, squirrels are rodents and they're very, very strong for their size and all the rest of it. So you know, it, it's harmless to an adult like me. But I'm just saying they will fight when cornered. When given no other choice, they'll always they'll run away first. They'll result in, most animals will run away, resort to, depending on their camouflage, so they'll sit totally still. But if you continue to get up close to them, eventually right. they will fight. If they and is there any fight. difference but, between red and grey squirrels in terms of aggression? Yes. Uh, there's a huge difference in size. Um, and red squirrels are very rare. And what so colour was the one that bit you? Grey. And just very important that I say, I didn't rescue that for rehabilitation because we only rehabilitate native species, but this was just an animal welfare issue where an animal was trapped. I just relocated it back out into the back garden. Right, so it felt um, that the, the stove wasn't on at the time, was it, when it fell down the no, chimney? No, 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 no. no lucky um, squirrel. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Now, um, we... In a couple of months' time now, when, when birds start to nest up on chimneys, we'll be responding to a lot of calls of juvenile birds, nestlings, falling down chimneys and getting caught. Um, and we'll have to go out there and get right. covered in sauce. Any advice on, for, for, for people on that in terms of taking precautions with their chimneys? Any chimney cowls or anything else prevent that happening? Yeah, absolutely. A good chimney cowl will solve most of your problems there. However, if you have multiple chimney pots, you need something that's going to cover the entire because what will happen is they'll just nest between the cowls, between the chimney pots. So you need something much bigger. Please don't use razor wire and barbed wire and all these things. All that's going to happen is someone like me is going to have to come out of the house, climb onto the roof and untangle some poor animal and gulls can be tied up in... We, we've rescued gulls that have been t- um, tangled in, in razor wire that have been hanging there for four days. So they can survive a very long time and they endure absolute misery in that time. And they're going to be pretty Terrible aggressive suffering. by the time you're trying to free them from the razor wire, well, apart from the hazard of the razor wire itself. Hopefully. Well, yeah, yeah. And ho- hopefully they are, because even even that one, I remember we, we it came from near Connie Station, four days hanging upside down and it was ready to be released the next day. That's how fit and strong they get. Now, we keep them for observation for a little bit longer, but they recover very quickly sometimes. Other okay. times, all we can do is alleviate their suffering. Pierce, the, just going back to the foxes, that high-pitched mm-hmm. noise that, um, that that we were told about, is that fox cubs or you, you mentioned mating there? What is that? Yeah, sound? that's them locating each other, locating mates so that they can pair up. And then what happens is the, the male fox will follow the female for a couple of weeks they have a very small window where the female's fertile. It's about three days, I think. And basically the foxes partner up and then they'll, they'll raise those cubs together. And we'll see. So are they both so that, making that kind of crying noise? I'm actually not sure if it's the male or the female or if it's both. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I'm, I'm pretty good at catching foxes, but I'm absolutely not an expert on, on their ecology. And, and, and you'd need to talk to Dan okay. from Kildare Wildlife Rescue to get the full lowdown on those things. I'm good at, I'm good at rescuing, um, but um, I'm not the, 
You're not the I'm animal not the expert. You're the animal rescue no. expert. Right, yeah, that's right. That's what it is. All right. So, and do they make a different noise when they're mating, or is that more Dan's bag as well? Well, they, 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 that high pitched noise that we hear is so that they can pair, partner up. And then you probably won't hear from them again for the rest of the year. But we'll, in January, they'll be mating. Um, and then we'll start to see the cubs coming in. But like I said, the weather's been so different. You know, I'm sure people have noticed that there's flowers coming up that shouldn't be coming up this time of year. Um, so that's another good reason to maybe feed your native wildlife as kind of climate is changing and things like that. These animals can start to struggle and things aren't behaving the way they should. So a little bit of help, I wouldn't say, did anybody any harm in, right. in this case. And cubs, you reckon, in March, is it? Yeah, that's when we'd start to see them. Now, they'll, you know, and, and it might go a little bit longer. And again, the unseasonably mild weather kind of changes some of these patterns. But I'd, I'd expect us to start getting to see those spring cubs coming up and people will be able to, you know, right. look out the backyard window and, and enjoy seeing them play. Cause, well, if, I mean, if, I think they're thank you. If people are unfamiliar with the, the sound of a fox, a, a listener has helpfully sent us in audio of a fox calling. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a Yahoo sound, isn't it? Can we hear it again? Yeah. It's, you don't know whether that's a fella on the way home from the pub or a fox. Well, this is, this is it, I suppose. And they're often in dark parkland and woodland around cities and stuff. And people hear that screeching and they're like, what? I'm, you know, what in the God is that? Um, and yeah, so that's them, that's them howling to, uh, to attract mates. And, and they're mostly, they are nocturnal animals, are they? So how would you know if you didn't actually see a fox, how would you know if there were foxes maybe in your garden or under your shed mm-hmm. if you weren't up and about early in the morning or, or late at night? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, during lockdown, people learned that foxes aren't strictly nocturnal. They are adapted to be nocturnal animals because of humans. So they're very happy to be out during the day, but it just makes more sense for them to come out at night. So if you're at home during the day, like I said, and you're sitting in the kitchen having a cup of tea, you can look out the window and you might see a fox trotting around, particularly when it starts to get a bit sunnier. They love to lie out on shed roofs and things like that and soak up a bit of sunshine. Um, Foxes get up on shed roofs? Oh, yeah. How do they get up there? They're they're pretty agile animals. Yeah, they they just jump right up. Yeah. Um, you'll see them walking on people's back walls. They'll easily scale, you know, a, a, an eight-foot wall. An adult fox would fly over an eight-foot wall, no problem. So up onto a shed roof, fly down. <laughs> um, Sunbathing on a shed roof. They're, yeah, they're pretty good climbers too. Um, if the if the terrain is, is right for them. I, um, I even, a couple of months ago, rescued a fox that was hiding in a tree. So they, they can... They're pretty good climbers, but if you've got fox in your back garden, you might recognize a smell. They have a pretty um, earthy kind of smell that you can, you can pick up sometimes. Again, you're likely to have them, more likely, I should say, if you have a shed or a deck, something that they can get under that is protected. Um, and then you might just be lucky enough to see them uh, out your back garden right. windows. And a lot of people with the you know those automatic lights that come on, they go, oh, there it is. There's a fox coming out to get us in or whatever. And when you say earthy, what's, what do you mean by earthy in terms of the smell of the fox? Are you talking about the smell of fox dung? Is it because some people, dog owners, might be familiar with it from from the smell of when the dog no. rolls in it? No, you're not. What, no. what, what does earthy no, no. mean? It's, to me, it's not an unpleasant smell. It's kind of sweet and almost herby. It's very, I'm, I'm not very articulate when it comes to these, these kinds of things, smells. But uh, um, 
yeah, I can just say it's kind of a sweet, sweet kind of herby, uh, oily smell that they give off. And it's, but it's not box dung, which is one of the worst smelling dungs, I think, in the animal kingdom, to be honest. Is it anything like the, 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 the whiff of patchouli oil you might get at a concert from somebody who wears it as a deodorant? I, I yeah I wouldn't I'm 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 not an expert on that either right. I'm afraid I'd, I'm no use on that. All right, well let's 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 have one more Yahoo from the Fox before we let you go, Pierce. <laughs> okay. All right, thanks very much. Back in a minute. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. Colin Momunga in here. You can get us on 51551 by text. WhatsApp us 087 484 8888 or from Northern Ireland or UK 08457 Joe at for your emails. Colin Barnes, good afternoon to you. Happy New Year. All right, thank you, and uh, happy New Year there. We were talking to Pierce Stokes before the break about the proliferation of foxes in urban areas, but it's the absence of animals that you're concerned with. Uh, yeah, a general decrease in um, whale and dolphin activity um, is going on slowly. So you're involved in Whale Watch. What did you have to do in 2023 in terms of the watching season? Um... There were less whales, which is they've been progressively that way. There's less and less food in the water for them. Is, is a headache. Um, so 2023 was a windy year too. The weather was bad a lot of the time. You can't go watching whales in rough water. You won't see them. And if there's a big swell and you have a whale right next year, you won't see it. And there's a big swell in the way, so. We missed an awful lot of this year. Um, just a windy, swelly weather, but there's no doubt that the numbers of whales are going down because the sprats that they feed on are going down because they're being overfished. And sprats, I suppose, people who are who are into sea angling might be familiar with with sprat as as the kind of the food of mackerel. So, is the, what's the knock-on In effect? In particular, yeah, uh, the mackerel are gone. I'm 51 years in West Cork now, and when I came here, the seas were teeming in mackerel and all year round, and a lot of other fish. And uh, anyone with a boat and a set of feathers will tell you how difficult it's become to catch a few mackerel, and they're gone. Their staple diet is larval sprat, and anyone who lives near the sea years ago might remember mackerel chasing white bait up onto the shores. And their little silvery things, inch, inch or two long, that's what mackerel look for constantly. It's their staple diet. So we don't have millions of larval sprat anymore because of overfishing. And this isn't your first time round of seeing the consequences of overfishing. It, it's the reason you're in Ireland, is it? Uh, yeah, largely, yeah. I, I started fishing in the English Channel. I was sea mad from the time I was a little kid, so... After leaving school, I managed to find myself a job fishing and just engrossed in learning about the sea. So uh, while I was fishing in the UK, the English Channel got fished to death. Unregulated fishing, and there was no common fisheries policy, no conservation measures, nothing. So French, British, Dutch boats emptied the English Channel. 
while I was fishing there. So I thought, there's no future here. So I started scanning anywhere where I might find better fishing. And for some reason, West Cork area just kept popping up. So finally, I saw a house uh, to let right down on the shore near Baltimore. So the princely sum was £3 a week with the sea on three sides of it. So I moved over here with the sole intention of fishing for a living, which I did up to millennium year, and quit that and then began whale-watching trips, which I'm still at now. So you're not talking about clifftop whale-watching, you're talking about bringing people out in boats, are you? Exactly, yeah, yeah. At what age were you when you started? You say you left school. What age were you when you started out your career as a fisherman? Uh, 19. I was the youngest skipper in New Haven Harbour where I started up. So you were 19 Um, when you became a skipper. But what age were you when you started on the boats? Like what was, how how Um, young were you? I used to help this guy out all the time when I was um, late teens. I used to... Go, charter his boat and go out angling and I used to help out and then one day it was just as a total surprise he didn't want to do it anymore and he said do you want to take the boat over so uh, just like that I, I got myself um, a job skipper in angling at first that was New Haven was a busy place for that close to London and lots of urban areas and did you know anyone in Ireland before you moved over? Were there any other fishermen who'd moved over from the English Channel before uh, you? No, I knew absolutely nobody. I went up the local library looking for images and all I got was Killarney. It was impossible to find any anything um, about West Cork from English sources. So it was a pleasant surprise when I got here. I had no idea what I was going to, and the IRA were very active at that time in the early 70s. Everyone said, don't go over there, you'll get your head shot off. And the British impression of Ireland was like the whole country was like the Fool's Road, which was not the truth. So I was pleasantly surprised by the amazing people and the way of life that there is in West Court. Right, so you expected a fairly hostile environment when you first came over, but... It didn't materialise. Yeah, sort of. Um, no, quite the opposite. I've never had such wonderful neighbours as the people that have lived nearby. Um, and when did you first you notice... You couldn't have better neighbours. When did you first notice the fall-off in the number of whales when you were taking the boats out? What are you, you're 23 years taking them out? Uh, yeah, I started up in 2001. So I'm at it ever since. And there were certainly more whales years back than there are now. And you could see why. There were, there were millions of sprat shoals that the whales used to come and feed on. And there's just less and less of them. So um, All right. numbers numbers are going down. As a, as a, and this is, a, this is an old traditional fishery. This is huge trawlers that target sprats. And for what? Far too many of them. Out for fish meal, mostly. But you won't find spats in your local fish shop anywhere. That most of them are churned it out for fish meal. For feeding fish farms, and I think it goes into animal feeds as well. Um, but they're used for that, not human consumption. It's um, scandalous. You know, it's wrong. 
and certainly not sustainable. You know, the stocks are crashing because uh, it's unregulated. There's no quota system, no stop on it. The boats are allowed to get as many as they like. Like, it's not a problem. And these are little fish that feed the ocean. They're one of the only fish you've got there that spend all day, every day, guzzling plankton and then become lovely little tasty bodies for everything else to eat. Right. And all the fish like cod, pollock, biting, coalfish, ling, all them gorge sprats on every occasion, uh, as do a lot of fish, you know, they're, and they're missing. So the water's, you know, gone dead as a result of that. Shazia Wahid, you're a marine biologist. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you too. You've been listening to Colin Barnes there on the other line. You're in Cork as well, are you? I am indeed, yeah, yeah. A- anywhere, um, anywhere near Colin, are you down in the Baltimore direction or are you in the city? No, 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 I'm near Cork City. Right. So, what, yeah. you're, you're, as I say, you're a marine biologist, what uh, Colin is talking about mm-hmm. there, the decline in, in sprat numbers. He's saying that there's no quotas on it, which has resulted in particularly extreme overfishing. What, what's the effect of that? Yeah, so, I mean... It's. I mean, the fact that there isn't quota, a quota in the first place it would be very worrying, you know, because I suppose the idea of the quotas is to ensure there obviously isn't any overfishing, you know, of any one particular species. But if there is no quota, then there is no, you know, there's no upper limit on the maximum number that can be taken from the ocean in any one year. So, um, and I suppose like Colin was saying, you know, the big issue with that is that sprat are one of the most important species in the marine food chain. You know, they're a small little cousin of the herring, small silver fish, you know, that would be food for, like, you know, themselves directly to seabirds, um, whales, you know, whose diet can often consist almost entirely of sprat or similar species like sandwiches. And, um, you know, I mean, it's not just the whales that are suffering. I mean, if you look at Irish seabird species, um, you know, a huge number of, you know, very well-known ones like the puffins, you know, the gannets, their numbers have been, you know, um, I suppose declining drastically um, in recent years. And a lot of that is thought to be down to, you know, reductions in their in their food source. So um, so the birds that yeah, people would, would associate with, you know, around the skelligs and that, gannets and yeah, uh, exactly, as you say, puffins, exactly. there are fewer of them, are there? Very, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think Ireland has something like 24 or 25 um, breeding seabirds uh, species, you know, and... I think all but one of them are either amber or red listed in terms of like their conservation status, obviously green being okay. So it just goes to show, you know, how endangered, you know, our sea life is. And when does, when did it first become evident that sprat were in decline to a, to a dangerous level to the extent that Colin is talking about there? Um, I'm not sure when exactly it's happened, but it's definitely been more recent times. Because I suppose what we tend to see with fisheries is this thing that's referred to as fishing down the food chain. So I suppose the most popular species to target, you know, historically would have always been the larger ones, you know, like cod. Edible um, ones, ones that are for human consumption. Yeah, exactly. But I suppose what's been happening is the more of those species we've overfished, um, the more we're kind of looking down to the smaller species that would normally be prey to those ones, in fact. And... um, and so you end up with this kind of um, cascade then, you know, that once they're overfished, like larger species like cod, which have very much been overfished as well, in Irish waters at least, um, you know, the problem is then they're moving down 
you know, over the years to these smaller and smaller species, which are of lesser value. And have they know, got? To, is there any? Is, is there any way that they've got down to plankton yet? Is that going to become a foodstuff? <laughs> is it already a foodstuff for <laughs> human consumption? Surprise anymore? <laughs> right. So, what um, should we be eating if if we want to kind of not provide the market for sprat or you know the, the kind of yeah. things that sprat are being well, made, so made it's into? Not what just should, about what we're eating either, because like Colin was saying, a lot of the sprat isn't fished for human consumption. You know, um, a lot of it is going to fish meal or even for, you know, for fertilizer and all that. Um, but uh, definitely if people want, you know, and so the big way people can make a difference, because I suppose most fish are fished, you know, most species, it's for human consumption, of course. But I suppose the best thing you can do is just um, if you're buying it in the supermarket, you know, have a look at the labeling. Um, eco-labeling is new, you know, it's been kind of widespread now in recent years. It does make it a lot easier, you know, for people to buy with a clear conscience. Um, and see, is this, you know, just look at the label and see is it sustainable or not. The Marine Stewards of Council um, does labelling uh, in a lot of supermarkets. And that would help, you know. And um, is there any effort at an international level to try and do something about this? I mean, Actually, Colin was talking about the size yeah. of trawlers and, and what they're doing. Is there any even yeah. guidance from the European Union, for example, on fishing yeah. sprat? Yeah, I mean, one of the things... Yeah. Sorry, oh, Colin. Yeah, to interrupt, there was guidance yeah, okay. from ICES who set all the quotas and all that, or they advised quotering. And over the last few years, they advised a catch of about 2,250 tonnes. And there are figures there at the Marine Institute for this. But 20 and 21, I think they landed about 15,000 tonnes, about five times the recommended maximum, um, which they're still advising yeah, this is, this now. This is what I've read as well, but yeah. They have never been quoted, regulated or stopped, so uh, it's a reckless, destructive fishery. And I agree about the birds, especially birds like kitty wakes and all the shearwaters. They don't really eat much else. They eat little white bait that have always been there to feed them all and no longer are. Those oceanic birds are suffering like fish stocks and everything else and spell yeah. out Shazi if you would what the what the long term yeah. effect of this is if we don't if we have fewer seabirds if we have fewer whales in the vicinity uh, of, of our coasts the, 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 what's the what's the knock on effect other, you will all move to other areas where they do find food oh, interestingly they're, they're not heavily fishing sprat anywhere else in Europe I, I was looking at the catch mm. figures for the Last few years, they're not fished in the UK minimally in Scotland a bit, and they're not fished by any other European nation. Sprat fishing seems to be peculiar to Ireland. And uh, I just want to let Shazia uh, come in on this, Colin. Shazia, what's the long-term effect of it? Yeah, so I mean, I can second what Colin's saying with regards specifically the whale watching industry. Absolutely, you know, I mean, this year in particular. Um, we saw large changes in the distribution, you know, of whales and dolphins, uh, particularly large whale species around the coast of Ireland. Um, but um, I suppose it could also be partly to do with climate change, but more than likely it's probably to do with the overfishing of the sprat. Um, but long term, yeah, it's going to have addressed you know, devastating impacts on the seabirds, which will continue to decline. And all the other uh, species that feed on them, like dolphins, you know, and 
and larger fish like I mean mackerel I mean mackerel feed on sprat it's not their only species that they feed on you know marine weed food webs are um, they're quite complex but you know it's going to have an impact on other commercially fished species as well so it's not just the environmental impact we're talking about it's going to have an economic impact as well um so, uh, and what's the role of the seabirds in, in the yeah. kind of the overall food chain and ecosystem? You know, if there's fewer well, of them, what's the knock on effect of that? Well, I suppose seabirds would themselves be a top predator, you know, because they, um, you know, they wouldn't have many natural predators of their own. And um, adults have quite a high um, survival rate. Um, I suppose in terms of seabirds, the biggest thing I can think of off the top of my head would be the ecotourism aspect, you know. I mean, you know, you think about people going to Skaggs, people going, I was at the Salty Islands myself um, last year and um, it's absolutely stunning, you know, seeing, you know, all these seabirds in huge numbers, you know, in situ, you know, breeding around our coastline. Um, and actually a funny thing uh, as well is, you know, you often hear about the issue with the seagulls, you know, say in Dublin and certain places like that. Um, you know, looking to feed on human scraps. And that's all because they've been driven there from lack of food, from their normal haunts, you know, little islands out in the sea. Right, so the reason people are having a a burger snatched out of their hand on on an urban street is potentially down to the fact that Sprat has been overfished and they're they're going further afield to find food. Yes, exactly. And the thing is, you know, especially during the breeding season, what's often seen is that, you know... They'll have to, the birds will have to travel further and further away from their nesting colonies on these remote rocks to find the food they need. And so that's using up precious calories and it's more time away from the chicks. And so what we'll probably see is more of a decline in the breeding success, you know, in, in, in over the years, you know. Um, You're just so, dealing with animals or birds that are, are less robust because of... Exactly, yeah. Right. They're not able to go out and get enough food to feed their young or not able to get the correct food because they need to feed them more on, you know, certain species are far more nutritious to feed the young, like sand eels and sprat in particular. So if those food aren't available, it's not easy for them to switch because they are one of the main species, you know, um, that they depend on, you know, for their young survival. And uh, as you say, they, they have to eat more to fly further and are less able to carry back maybe the food that's needed for, for, for the brood of chicks. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Colin, is, I mean, you, you, whale watch is your main, uh, is what people mainly get on your boat to look at, but are seabirds part of the attraction when you bring somebody out for a marine experience? Is it the whole thing yeah, or just no. whales? No, birds are a big part of it. Um, that's largely how you locate whales, watching the gannets, shearwaters, um, oceanic birds and anywhere there's any feeding activity they're on it so uh, birds are a big part of our operation and there'd be a lot of days if we didn't have oceanic birds I don't think we'd find whales on Sundays and we do uh, we haven't done a blank trip in eight years now there's days we don't see whales but there's always animals there always right but obviously you need birds to find them Fewer as time goes on. Okay, well, that's pretty sobering for the day that's in it. Uh, Colin Barnes shows you a heat. Thanks very much. We're back in a minute. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 815. 
Talk to Joe on 0818-715-815. Colm O'Mungan here. You can get us on 51551 by text. Joe at RT.ie uh, RT. by email and WhatsApp us on 087-484-8888 or from Northern Ireland 0845785333. Sarah, Happy New Year to you. Hiya, how are you doing? Um, I suppose a lot of people have been reading in the newspapers over the last while or listening on the radio to the look ahead on what's coming down the tracks in terms of tax or energy credit changes. There was a, a credit yeah, due like, in December 23, you know, January like, and March. You know, I, I, was, I was banking on it. I was kind of like literally banking on it. And um, I was you know, thinking, you know, a couple of days, you know, I'm going to get my free energy credit. And it never came. <laughs> Can you just tell us, give us, paint the picture of, of where you're living and obviously you were looking forward to getting the energy credit in December 23, as you say. Um, what are your circumstances and how did you find out you weren't getting it? So um, I'm a single person. I, I work full time uh, and I, you know, I the energy credit is like, I, you know, I was looking forward to it. And when it didn't, you know, when it didn't come at the start of January, I was looking up different websites and it said from, you know, from the 1st of February. So I was kind of like, oh, you know, give it a little while, give it a little while. And then um, it kind of came apparent that I wasn't going to get it. And had um, you got it before? So, yeah, I got it last winter. Yeah. Okay. And you're on a prepaid meter. And prepaid meter, yeah. So, so the energy credit in previous uh, previous occasions has been credited to your account, and you would have made use of it then throughout the the, the time as as prepay credit. Yeah, yeah. So it was all good. Everything was all good. So that's why I was dubious when, like, when I wasn't getting it this year. So when after about a week or two, and I was kind of thinking, oh, you know, what's going on? What's going on? Um, so I, you know, I looked into it a little bit further and it looked like I wasn't getting it. And how did you follow it up? Where did you make inquiries? Um, I made inquiries with Citizens Information, a few websites. Um, and I was basically told, Citizens Information told me that they pointed me to the right webpage and said that I wasn't automatically entitled. So it doesn't mean I'm not entitled, but I'm not automatically entitled. Right. So just to, just to fill people in, you are living uh, in, it's a one-bedroom apartment, and it's it's yeah. rented accommodation, is it? And yeah. the fact that it's you rent it and you're on a, a sub-meter in the building hasn't affected in the past. You've claimed the credit before. So in the first instance, yeah, yeah. you contacted your landlord, was it? Yeah, so I, I said to him, like, do you know anything about this? And he phoned me straight back and said, listen, I don't know anything what's going on. And he was very, you know, obliging, as he always has been. Uh, and just said he doesn't know anything about it. So he got on to the provider uh, then, did he? He got on to the provider and they said, because I've got low usage, that I'm not automatically entitled. Right, so the, the low energy threshold, for anyone who doesn't know, people get the credit. And in, in, in an effort to avoid second homes or 
uh, holiday homes that aren't used that much getting the energy credit, which was one of the complaints about the energy credit first time around, that it, it was given to everyone whether they needed it or not. They introduced a low usage threshold for mm-hmm. households that use less than 150 kilowatt hours in a quarter in four consecutive quarters are not yeah, eligible he, for the credit. He, expl- he explained to the provider the reason that I didn't use that threshold was because I couldn't afford it, which is why the energy credit is there in the first place. It's supposed to be there for people who can't afford their electricity, and which is what which is me. And for yeah, just just in terms of the guidance uh, on it, the the low ener- the low energy uh, usage or a low es- e- e- low usage energy account, you're talking about boiling the kettle twice a day, turning the lights on uh, twice a day. They reckon. But sure, I would have done that. I would have done that. Had the fridge freezer plugged in. So I'll, I'll run you I through. I would have done that. Yeah. I'll run you through what the CRU, and you're probably aware of this, this is probably part of the frustration. It says the amount of energy, 150 kilowatt hours, is roughly what a customer would use over three months if a customer had a fridge freezer plugged in, boiled a kettle twice a day, had one light bulb on for two hours a day, and the calculation is made by ESB networks for each domestic electricity meter. Now, you are, you you reckon you've... You've used energy. Yeah, I but haven't been away. I've been away for Christmas, but before that, which is the time in question, would have been exactly that. Yeah, like I, I yeah, yeah. But you ha- you've been trying, because of the affordability issue, you have been trying to keep your bills low. What kind of things are you doing to keep your bills low? Well, I don't put the heat on. I literally do not put the heat on. Because I can't afford it. I put the heating on last night because I came back from Wexford. I was in Wexford for the Christmas And I came back from Wexford last night. And I put the heating on to try and air the place out. And I spent a tenner. Tenner. One night. An electric heating. But the difficulty of your situation is is that you're not currently getting this credit because of what's over the past four quarters. So that tenor you spent on heating to air out uh, the one-bed apartment that you're living in, you're not going to get the energy credit to cover that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Now, we went to the um, Commission for uh, the Regulation of Utilities, CRU, where I think... You know, people are referred to when they have queries about this and they have a vulnerable customer category. And it says that vulnerable customers are those who may be particularly vulnerable to disconnection for reasons of advanced age or physical sensory or intellectual or mental health is, I mean, without meaning to pry. But if that's the only way of being exempted from the low usage or being considered a hard case, do you qualify under any of those categories? Well, like, what do I have to do to prove that, though? If if I do come under, I don't know if I do. Like, I'm not, I'm not one to take the mick as well. Sure. You know, do I come under those categories? I don't know if I do. Because I've always paid my way. I've always paid my taxes. I've always, you know. 
We, we got in touch with the department as well and they said uh, any household that is not, this is the Department of Environment, Climate and Communication, said any household that has not been given the electricity credit by their supplier because their very low electricity usage might suggest the property is not occupied but think they should qualify, should talk to their supplier using the usual complaints process first. Um, uh, but I just get, get passed back to Commissioner for Regulations or utilities, whatever it's called. Yeah, the commission, yeah, for the, the CRU, the Commission for the Regulation of Utilities. So you're, you've gone through your supplier. I've gone through both. And the CRU. I've gone through both. And they refer you back to them again. Oh, they, they both refer me back to each other. And the, the provider, as uh, and we're not naming the provider because it's, it, it's more the system than the provider, uh, told us it's that the low usage threshold is a government scheme being implemented by the CRU. So they're implementing that as directed. But none of that seems to take your circumstances into account, is, is no, what you're saying. like, exactly. And you see, I live in a one-bedroom flat and I haven't put the heating on. I have, um, I bought uh, a superfair. Well, you might like no what with the gas bo- the, the gas bottle heater with the clicky button on the top. Yeah, thing in the back. You know, you put it on the back. Um, and I bought that because I couldn't afford the heating because I spent I, I spent a tenner a tenner on one night ten euro. And what about a washing machine? Do you have Do you have a washing machine, or what What would be your other I, heavy use? I do use? have a washing machine, but I use it probably one night a week. And it takes forever to dry. And I would go to like the back of Super Value. Sorry for, if I won't. Yeah, for the for the kind of communal back use of machines. Back supermarkets, you yeah. know. Yeah, 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 yeah. For for the likes of a tum- you don't have a tumble dryer in the apartment. No, I don't. No, no. Because of the electricity consideration, is it? Well, like I would get one, but I can't afford it. You know, uh, so like, it's and, uh, absolutely uh, ridiculous. Uh, anyone who, who uses the, the communal washing machines and tumble dryers out the back of supermarkets will be aware that that, again, is, is a pretty expensive... Uh, a, yeah, they're, they're pretty three expensive or machines. Pop, like three or a pop. Yeah, a three or a go. So do you feel that the the CRU are missing out on, on the, the circumstances that you're in because you're you're keeping your bills low but you're effectively being penalised for your well, meter kinda, looking I like... Kinda, the... yeah, exactly, but, but I kind of feel like it's not just the CRU, I think it's the government that are saying like, you know, oh, you know, we're going to give this free energy credit, it's all brilliant, it's all great, we're going to give this like 150, like in December, January, February, or December, January, March, we're going to give this 150 credit, you know, like, you know, they're doing this brilliant thing, but they're giving money to people who have money, and the people that don't have money, like me, are missing out. And what would you be, what's, you know, you'd use it if you got it. What's the first change it would make if you were getting the energy credit? Well, the first change I would do is I would probably put a wash on and I would put a heat on. 
like I would literally put heat on full blast put heat on and enjoy it and before you aired the apartment out how long had it been since you'd put the heating on um, I hadn't put the heat on this year at all and how do you manage around the apartment? I mean, are your neighbours putting the heating on? Does it help that other apartments are heated if they're heated or are you just putting um, on extra there's layers? Only one, there's only one other apartment in the block on their, um, like, the, the, there's only one, literally one other apartment. So that's that. Um, so, you know, literally I just, I just don't put the heating on and I just stroll on and... Hope for the best. <laughs> you know, like that's it. All right. All right. Well, Sarah Corrigan, thanks very much for for uh, getting in contact with us. I hope you reach some form of resolution that, as you say, uh, allows you to put on a wash or the heating full blast at some point in the near future and uh, and warm up the apartment. Um, Happy New Year to you. Thank you. You All too. Right. We'll be back in a minute. Talk to Joe on 0818 715 Talk to Joe on 0818-715-815. Colm O'Mungain here. Just a quick one before we go. Annette in Tallag, uh, Happy New Year to you. You too, Colm. How are things? I'm good, thanks. You want to raise a bit of awareness. Um, there was un- unprecedented um, road deaths last year, or certainly the highest in a decade. And uh, you have a concern, particularly for pedestrians in your area. Yes. Yes, well, not just in my area, because you only have to listen to the news to find out that there's been pedestrians knocked down and fatally injured in all parts of the country. And my concern, or what I wanted to bring up, was the fact that they think that they're visible, but they aren't. And if, like years ago, when you'd be out and about, you would wear a reflective armband or you would wear what I would call a Sam Brown belt, which would be something that would go across your chest and tie at the waist. And it would be reflective to the drivers in the cars. And also, I think a lot of school children in years gone by, the Road Safety Authority would have supplied or encouraged reflective armbands for children. And that's just not the case. So you'd like to see a rollout of those orange and white armbands or the high-vis vest or... The high-vis, yeah. I think it would help, I would hope it would help in cutting down on the terrible fatalities that you hear about every week, every second day you hear of a pedestrian knockdown in some parts of the country and the school children coming out with all the the dark evenings and going into school in the dark mornings. They're wearing dark jackets, you know, and it just would make it an awful lot better if they were to be visible to drivers. And in the terrible windy and wet weather conditions we've had lately, anything would be a benefit. All right, Annette, thanks very much for calling us in with that uh, road safety concern. That's our lot for today on Sound. We're Liam Mullen, broadcast coordinator. Shane Galvin, producer, was Annette Egan. Ray Darcy's next. 0818 715 815 stays open until 3.15pm or email joe at rte.ie.